0: You are listening to the Canadian Bar Association, National Magazine. Hi, I'm Eve Feige, the Editor-in-Chief of CBA National Magazine. Welcome to the first episode of After the Pandemic, a conversation about the future of justice, produced in partnership with CBA Futures. COVID-19 has put many of our institutions to the test, including our justice system, which has been caught completely off-guard and forced to adapt on the fly. Now, a rising chorus of voices is calling on governments, regulators, the courts, and practitioners to turn this crisis into an opportunity to set things right. If they do, there's a chance they can start rebuilding a more responsive and accessible system of justice for Canadians. But the question is, can the key players in the legal sector learn to work together to implement meaningful changes? To kick off our series today, I'm joined by two lawyers who have given these questions a lot of thought. Our first guest lives and breathes family law. He's practiced it for two decades, writes about it, has spent years demystifying the justice system for the public, and to put it mildly, has not been shy about advocating for an overhaul of how our justice system handles family disputes in particular. In 2013, he took a position as the Executive Director of the Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family, a nonprofit affiliated with the University of Calgary, which has since seen its funding cut. He's a trained mediator, parenting coordinator, and an arbitrator. In 2018, he returned to private practice, providing services through Alberta throughout Alberta and uh, British Columbia with Wise Scheibel Barkowskis and is the principal of John Paul uh, Boyd Arbitration Chambers. I'm pleased to have us with us today, John Paul Boyd QC. Welcome to the podcast, John Paul. Thanks, Eve. And our second guest is also passionate about the legal industry. She's a sought out legal operations consultant. Her fans call her a catalyst for change in the way we work and think about the practice of law. Driven by a desire to help individual lawyers grow, she currently she's currently working on building an online on demand course for lawyers across Canada who want to start their own law firm, uh, but uh, doing things differently, presumably uh, differently at least than the way uh, practices have been run since the Spanish influenza. I'm guessing. Uh, please welcome Kyla Sandwith of DeNovo Inc. Welcome to the podcast, Kyla. Thanks
1: for having me.
0: So uh, let's get right into it. Uh, the the former chief justice of the Supreme Court, Beverly McLaughlin, recently was bemoaning the woeful inability of our courts to adapt quickly to provide what would uh, what most would agree is as an essential service. Um, obviously, the justice system has been caught completely off guard. Uh, courts have had to restrict access and slow down their work. They've allowed some appearances to take place through video conferencing or by phone. Uh, limitation periods have been suspended and some have been scrambling to facilitate e-filing of documents. So there have been some efforts to uh, to uh, to pivot. Uh, the uncomfortable truth, though, is that the system has been barely holding it together for years. Uh, we all know that struggling with backlogs and reasonable delays. Um, so the access to justice crisis is been very well documented in Canada. Uh, let me ask you: Why is it that everybody acknowledges it, and yet we, as a society, are incapable or not prepared to commit the kind of funding and effort required to make sure we fix it, so that regular citizens can actually resolve their disputes in a reasonably timely manner? Uh, John Paul, do you want to try that first? Sure. Um,
2: I think. Part of the reason is the incredible inertia that the status quo carries. Uh, you know, Most of the proposals that have been made about how to overhaul the justice system call for a radical transformation of the court system. And there is a lot of money tied up in taking steps like that. And so my suspicion is that um, rather than spending the millions of dollars that would be required now to effect a meaningful change that might take four, five years to complete, um, we are essentially holding our nose and waiting until the ship crashes. I mean, we've known for decades that there is a terrific access to justice problem in Canada. Um, The wave of reports that came out in 2012 and 2013 were, were absolutely nothing new to anyone. Uh, and it sort of, and it seems to me that we're almost you know waiting for that moment of supreme crisis before we decide that we have no choice but to allocate the funds and the effort that's going to be required to reform the system. And since at least prior to the pandemic, uh, the length of time that was expected to pass until we reached that climax of crisis was so vastly indeterminate. Um, no government, uh, federal or provincial or territorial, um, had the pressing motivation to sit down and start spending that kind of money.
0: Uh, Kyla, is this the crisis, do you think, that will prompt us into action?
1: You know, I hope so. I mean, I I think that, um, you know, for a very long time, uh, as as John Paul pointed out, the system, um, you know, hasn't reached that absolute crisis point. And by, by reaching the crisis point, we mean that it's not working for all of its stakeholders. So, right now, it's currently somewhat working for some of its stakeholders, namely, you know, the lawyers and, you know, the judges who have already always done the way, you know, things the way they have. Um, and the, you know, the more wealthy in society, the corporations who have access, uh, in a meaningful way. So this crisis has brought that inaccessibility to the forefront for all the stakeholders now. And so I'm, I'm really hoping that that is, you know, this is something that we, um, the, an opportunity that we seize upon. Um, to me, it would be a real loss if in a month's time we, you know, we're back at it um and people kind of go Phew, you know we 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 dodged that bullet um and carry on i think we'll see real change and a real um drive to make that change if this car- the longer this carries on um and i hate to say this but that would be the, the silver lining of this dragging on for uh you know a year or more
0: So I want to rewind just a little bit because, uh, Kyla, you know, John Paul, and there's a reason why I had you both on is that uh, you both worked together on a project together in the past before the before the pandemic, obviously. uh, And that was the Aspire Legal Initiative. And uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit what you were trying to achieve uh, in that project and what were some of the challenges you faced?
1: So, what we were trying to achieve, um, it was the Aspire Legal Access Initiative, and it was really born out of, um, you know, what we were seeing were, uh, you know, a real lack of access to legal services, particularly in the area of family law. Um, and so, you know, a group of lawyers, the Dean of the University of Calgary, Ian Holloway, um, and Anthony Young, the then um, president of... Um, Lost City of Alberta. They decided, you know, to try and build, uh, you know, essentially what was a 21st uh, century law firm, um, and you know, build something innovative that really helped us sort of rethink how legal services were delivered. Um, you know, the the way we built our law firm, um, and we were also training new lawyers to think outside the box in terms of legal service delivery. Um, so that was that was what we aimed to do. Uh, some of the roadblocks we came up against. I mean, I think they were, some of the roadblocks were intentional. Um, so the law society wanted us to work within um, work within their rules, uh, existing rules. So uh, most not-for-profits delivering pro bono services don't comply with the rules. Only law- lawyers and law firms can deliver legal services to the public, but pro bono Legal services deliver legal services to the public regularly outside of that sort of framework. So, so the law society rightly turns a blind eye to encourage, you know, that those services, but we weren't allowed to do that. So then we had to come up with, you know, sort of a crazy structure in order to comply with the rule. Um, and then we also had sort of funding issues, we just didn't have um, enough leeway to do what we were trying to do, which was something. Pretty phenomenal, frankly, um, and the the funding that you know the the response to the funding that we got was I mean it lacked vision. Um, the Ontario Law Foundation, um, you know, granted us quarter of a million dollars uh, in funding, but that was project funding. So they did see you know the potential of this project. Uh, unfortunately, our own law foundation um, didn't see. You know, couldn't quite see the the you know the vision of this, um, unfortunately, and that was one of the major roadblocks was that we just didn't have the time. Uh, uh,
0: John Paul, you you've also uh, had issues with funding in the past. Um, uh, you uh, you led the Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family. It had to close down over funding issues as well, uh, relatively recently uh i wonder you know does um uh you know what what are your views on that and uh, do you worry sometimes that uh the fact that these institutions get shut down uh leave the impression among people that uh that uh that, that you know we we these efforts at modernizing our justice system don't work well
2: One of the problems we have with how Canada's law foundations are structured is that each one of them has a mandate that is specific to their territory or province. And so, you know, when we look at the few uh, Canadian projects that have that have taken a national perspective. And right now I'm thinking of Julie McFarland's National Self-Represented Litigants Project, and specifically the paper that she wrote about self-represented litigants in 2012. Well, she did research talking to self-reps in Alberta, British Columbia, and Ontario, and had funding from each of those three law foundations. And uh, it, it, is, it is a requirement of getting funding from any particular law foundation that the work you do uh, have a direct impact on the people of that particular province. I mean, that's understandable. It, it's, it's part of their, their corporate mandate. But the problem that we have is that there, aren't, that there is no organization uh, including the Association of Canadian Law Foundations which takes a truly national vision. And what that means is that for organizations like the former Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family that have that national vision and that national mandate, um, they're constantly uh, juggling uh, hoops, uh, making applications through multiple funders in order to get the funding to tackle multi-provincial projects. And so You know, one of the solutions that occurred to me was that if you take the Association of Canadian Law Foundations uh, and uh, if that organization were able to tithe uh, its members, Uh, to a certain percentage of their annual income in order to create a a pool of national funding, that's probably the only meaningful way to to support organizations that have a national mission. Otherwise you're stuck in that parochial sort of uh, vision where you're stuck in that particular province or that particular territory. Um, And the other options that are available for funding such as shirt grants um, really are notoriously inadequate for not-for-profit organizations, they work quite well for universities, uh, but they, they were never a viable option for the research institute, and so that that's a real shame. Uh, but that kind of lack of national vision and the, the lack of a national funding body that that's able to support uh, innovative research on family justice and access to justice means that we're kind of reduced to these pockets uh, of groups uh, from place to place and, and that aren't able to coordinate with themselves and take that truly national approach and uh, really grab the bull by the horn, so to speak.
0: well, and that situation mirrors our federal structure too where um we have uh governments uh and especially at the provincial level are responsible for the administration of justice uh how do we get it on their legislative agenda to uh to work through these issues
2: well i mean so let let's take a step back and think about what it, what what's involved in getting something on the legislative agenda right um, first, uh, if you're going to do something more significant than a tinkering around the edges, uh, in general, um, you know, within each provincial uh, ministry of justice, you wind up having to set uh, set up a group uh, that is tasked to developing the policy that then informs the drafting of the legislation. And any government that's worth its salt will take the time to consult with uh, the different stakeholder groups. And then assu- and then uh, with the feedback from the stakeholder groups and the research that is done internally within the different ministries, that produces a policy which goes to government for approval, and if government approval is received, then it goes off to drafting council, and drafting council spend eons converting otherwise uh, cogent and understandable uh, concepts into dense and impenetrable legalese, and then it has to actually get space on the legislative agenda. And so, you know, thinking back to my own experience with British Columbia's Family Law Act that replaced. The Family Relations Act, you know, first government spent two to three years on a Family Relations Act review advisory uh, group. uh, And then it was doing research, and the research led to the publishing of a bunch of uh position papers that were sent out for public feedback and that and the response they had to that led to the founding of a family law act advisory group that led to the drafting that in turn required further feedback from the canadian bar association and others and other groups and then it had to find space on the legislative agenda and so each year uh, or at least each legislative session there are a dozen ministries who are competing for space on the government's list. Um, and so just as uh, the attorney general might be fighting to bring forward uh, something innovative in the realm of family law, which the Family Law Act certainly was, it's competing with, you know, forestry who wants something about uh, clear cutting. It's competing with the hospitals who are looking for more funding and different kinds of legislation. And in short, make, getting anything through that kind of long. multi-year process requires nothing short of a miracle because, I mean, just think about the time commitment, the commitment of staff resources internally within the ministry, and then the allocation of millions of dollars to support that particular legislative agenda, and then government having the ability to prioritize that particular piece of legislation over the others in order to actually get it on the docket. I mean, when the Family Law Act uh, had been drafted and was ready to go, as it happened, uh, Christy Clark, who was then the premier of British Columbia, happened to be running on a slogan that was something to the effect of families first and i don 't know that had that had Ms Clark decided not to run on that particular agenda, whether the family lag would have ever made it to uh, to the legislative table
0: so I mean that 's interesting but that, but then at the same time, and I understand that it is hard to get uh, get reforms through government but you know, you've both pointed out to me in our past conversations that we've seen a worrying trend over the years. And this worrying trend is that people are, are opting out of the justice system. Um, and we are a country that prides ourselves on the rule of law. So this should be pretty alarming to our political leaders and our elected representatives. Um, you know, Kyla, what, what would you suggest we do to get uh, the broad issue of fixing our justice system back on the legislative agenda? at the provincial level or at the federal level?
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's, I think what's right now is, is a really good opportunity. Um, It's, it's like John Paul said, it's, it's one of those things where some of this stuff takes a really long time, but in this circumstance, we're already seeing some legislative changes that are happening very, very quickly in order to accommodate for some of the restrictions caused by COVID and whether that's you know face to face um swearing about affidavits those kinds of things you know to be fair those are tinkering around the edges but this I think this pandemic is really going to be um you know one of those things that that prompts people to to bring this front and center. Um, we know that our government is putting together a working committee on on uh the judiciary so so these are things that are already happening. Um, and so it is, it's, it's started. Um, and that because of the urgency of this pandemic, um, you know, the, that we won't lose traction and we, we won't lose steam on this. But, you know, I, I think JP's right. It's, it's, it, we've got so many different factions. We've got an independent bar, we've got an independent judiciary, and then we've got the government. And, you know, our system is predicated on the independence of those, uh, you know, of, of the judiciary and, and the bar. And so really getting anything done on a major systemic level is going to require that those, those parties all work together. Um, and that takes a lot um, of, of will and uh, leadership, frankly.
0: Uh, uh, Jean-Paul, I think you wanted to cut in there.
2: Well, you know, I, I think Kyle is right uh, in, in as much as the pandemic offers us uh, collectively as a society, an opportunity that we have not previously had. Um, you know, one of the, you know, you asked the question about why is it so hard to get issues about legislative reform and access to justice? on the agenda. And, you know, family law is such a good example or example of why this is a problem. Um, And, you know, I mean, aside from the obvious fact that in general, family law disputes rarely affect massive corporate interests, uh, don't have, you know, a massive impact on, you know, on the economy or on uh, unemployment rates and things like that. um, You know, probably because of the public writing I've done, uh, I get... A lot of calls uh, every week uh, from individuals from across Canada who have experienced uh, absolutely jaw-droppingly horrific uh, litigation experiences in their family law problem. I mean, we're talking about files that have gone on for eight, nine, ten years. Uh, we're talking about uh, repeated histories of breaches and lack of compliance, uh, and 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 from what. Uh, from what, from all accounts, appears to be just an outright travesty of justice, uh, and an absolute, you know, ex- multiple examples every week of the complete dysfunction of the system, and and you know, I I, I have always been so surprised that I could hear from so many Canadians on such a on such a frequent basis and yet nothing seems to happen uh, so we have the media talking about this and what the media does is they focus on one story and then once the stories run its run its legs uh, then it's done and you don't hear about continuing problems and so what I've told people is you know, You know, the reality is government knows this is a problem. The the judiciary knows it's a problem. The law societies know this is a problem. Uh, But, you know, you on your own are not going to be able to just by phoning your MLA, your MPP or your MP effect meaningful change. You've got to do something more. And so uh, but until, you know, all of these people who are experiencing all of these grotesquely dysfunctional aberrations of the justice system, find a way to gather together to create that level of public outrage that's required to actually create movement, I don't think we're ever going to see it. But we've. But this virus has had this one, uh, sorry, I was going to say it had a wonderful impact. It's obviously not a wonderful impact. It has had a surprising impact in terms of demonstrating the fundamental fragility of the justice system in a way that I don't think any of us could ever have predicted as recently as December last year.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, and I think part of the issue is, is that, you know, when people talk about access to justice, they, it's often characterized as a financial issue, right? So it, it's looked at as, well, that's a problem for poor people that cannot afford the legal system and a lawyer and and, and in reality, that's not the case. Many lawyers can't afford other lawyers so, so, I think it gets misrepresented and often, you know, even it's, it's an easy thing to dismiss because the fix is more social welfare, right? And not many politicians have, have an appetite for that, um, particularly these days. So, so, it's easy to fluff it off the agenda uh, and dismiss the problem altogether um, because John Paul's right is that this, this, these aren't major corporations who have the ear of the government. These, these are individual everyday people who sometimes don't even know that the experience that they've had is an abomination of what, you know, of, of the process. Um, and go on for years, you know, eight years with a lawyer who, you know, is treating you as their, their private piggy bank. That is an abomination. And, and People don't know that. They stick with it because they're convinced that lawyers are there to help them and that there's no other way to access the system. So, better the devil you know, than going somewhere and trying it on your own or trying another lawyer.
0: So, John Paul, uh, you're working on a a CBA proposal to reform the code of conduct for family law lawyers. Uh, And this would allow them to practice uh, as I understand it, in a less adversarial mode, and give uh, more premium to the interests of children, uh, more importance on par with the interests of lawyers' clients. Um, it's a really interesting and fascinating project, uh, but it addresses some of these um, some of these, uh, these these baked-in habits that we have as a as a profession. And you know, I think a lot of people would probably respond a little skeptically that adversarial litigation is really built into our DNA. Uh, So why is it that we need to revisit our usefulness uh, in light of this discussion?
2: Well, I think that this actually sort of touches on some of the access to justice, justice issues that Kyla was referring to when she said that access to justice isn't only about Canadians who are, you know, have low, low, low levels of income. That that there are some inequities that are baked into the system um, that undermine. Uh, what is, to my mind, uh, an appropriately functioning family justice system, and you, know, in, in it, you don't really have to look very far to look at systemic problems. Uh, often they're quite in front of your nose, like Alberta's Family Law Act, for example, uh, mentions the term agreement precisely zero times. It's not even written in the legislation. And so if you are an average Albertan who is separate from your uh, partner and you're, uh, you believe that you're smart enough that you can read the legislation and figure out what's going to happen, you, you're smart enough to find it. You start reading it, nothing in there tells you, by the way, there is something other than court that you can use to resolve your legal problem. Right. Every time you're reading in the family logged in, and it says something about child support, something about spousal support, something about uh, parenting time, it says, well, to to get a court order for this, apply to do X, Y and Z. And so that, that's an example of a structural problem where we have legislation that is designed to drive people towards the courts, right? But from a family perspective, uh, and, and and you know, I I have the view that. Uh, Family justice is fundamentally different than other species of civil justice, Uh, if for no other reason than the fact that, you know, the, the, the people who are the primary beneficiaries of justice are not just the adults who are leaving their relationship, but it's their children. And we know, for example, because the social science is quite clear on this, we know about the adverse effects that parental conflict have on children. In fact, there are only two factors that are critical to children's positive adaptation from the separation of their parents. One is the nature and quality of children's relationships with each of their parents. And the other is the nature, intensity and duration of the conflict between the parents that the children are exposed to. And so when, uh, and so when, when we take family law problems and we shove them into the litigation system the way the Alberta Family Law Act tells us they are, we are in a system where the where children are are, are being exposed to a costly time-consuming and destructive way of resolving family law disputes when there are other ways that, that you could choose to, to address the problem. And so the, the project that I'm, that I'm looking at in terms of uh, amending the code of conduct, I mean, the, the one that I think of immediately is rule 5.1, that talks about the function of the lawyer as advocate Uh, and that rule and its commentaries uh, admonishes lawyers to to fiercely advocate for their clients, to ask every question, no matter how distasteful, to pursue every line of inquiry, no no matter how distasteful. Uh, That provision, there's a commentary that does suggest that lawyers may consider the interest of clients, but only if it doesn't prejudice the interests of their clients. And even then it's a may rather than a must. And so the problem we have is that if you're going to be a sensitive lawyer who is aimed at the long-term consequences of the family and leaving the family, Uh, as a a functioning unit heading off into the future, able to cooperatively co-parent their children, that means that you need to find less adversarial ways of resolving disputes, which means that you need to find a way out of court. And if you can't go out of court, then you you need to be able pursuant to the code of conduct, to ethically advocate an approach to your client, which considers not only the outcome for your client, but the outcome in favor of the children. You need to be able to advocate solutions that minimize conflict rather than promote it. And right now, if you do those things, you're in breach of the professional code of conduct because you're not taking that zealous approach to advocacy. And you are trying to co-prioritize interests that are not those of your client. They are those of your client's children. And so that, that's, that's all part of, uh, of, of what that project's all about. It's about trying to uh, create uh, the, the, the regulatory environment within which lawyers are able to prioritize the interests of children, ethically pursue less conflictual, less adversarial means of conflict, and overall try to dampen the, uh, the extent of the conflict between parents so as to uh, promote the best interests of their children.
0: So, Kyla, uh, from, your, from your perspective, uh, how should we be resolving uh, disputes? Uh, do we need to take them out of the court system? Uh, shall we be uh, moving them to uh, a more of an administrative model in some cases? Uh, how does technology come into play?
1: And specifically in the area of family law, I think, I think definitely needs to come out of the courthouse because what you have really is a social problem with a legal component to it. There are emotional problems. There are sometimes psychological problems. There are financial issues that for some reason we have created this, a family breakup as a legal problem. And this is where everything gets dealt with. And oftentimes the emotional and psychological problems get dealt with in the courthouse by lawyers who are not trained to deal with this. So, you know, I would like to see this moved out of the court, courthouse as the primary go-to location for resolution of family law issues. Um, that in and of itself, I think, removes us from the idea that there is a winner or a loser and the judge will decide um, and, and potentially makes it a more collaborative endeavor. Um, the role of technology, I think, really you know, as in all changes to uh, any changes in in the legal system, you need to look at the process first. You need to look at the system first. Um, technology on top of the bad process is just going to automate and speed up bad results. So you really need to take a look at the process. Um, and fundamentally, particularly in the in the area of family law, that requires us to step away from the adversarial model that we're taught. Um, You know, that is, you're absolutely right, baked into our DNA from that first day of law school, that there's always a winner and a loser, and you're there to advocate on behalf of the winner, hopefully.
0: Do either of you get a sense that there is appetite among practitioners? Uh, Because they're a big part of the solution as well, um, to overhaul the system and to... Experiment a little bit with different ways of doing things I
1: think overhauling the system is is a bit is um, <laughs> a bit too big of an ask. Uh, I don't think that there's if you were to ask any practitioner that there, there's a an appetite for an overhaul. I think a lot of practitioners are open to some changes um, but an overhaul would be a would be a stretch for sure i think I think people really want to see some advancements, but that needs support from the law society um, and the rules that govern us and restrict us from taking risks and, um, you know, and trying new things. Uh, You know, we try new technologies and we could be offside client confidentiality rules. And so, you know, there are huge risks with trying new things and there's an appetite there. There just isn't the support yet, I don't think.
2: Uh, Maybe maybe I can offer uh, the silver lining and the ray of hope to a discussion that is at times awfully grim. Um, There are only two jurisdictions that I've uh, practiced in uh, to any meaningful extent, British Columbia and Alberta. And in British Columbia, I was uh, involved in creating uh, two organizations. Uh, First uh, was the BC Parenting Coordinators Roster Society, <clears throat> Excuse me. And I believe that we, uh, we founded that in 2007, 2008, and then a few years later, the BC here, the Child Society. The BC Parenting Coordinators Roster Society um, was was founded in order to promote parenting coordination as a way of dealing with post-trial and post-settlement high-conflict parents who are constantly involved in problems involving, well, parenting issues, right? Uh, And the Hear the Child Society was about promoting hearing the views of children in furtherance of Canada's commitment to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, as well as the positive effects on children. And, you know, those two organizations were created by a couple of lawyers and a couple of mental health professionals with no writ from the government, no fiat from the courts and no magic wave of the wand or license from the law society. And in each case, it was a small number of lawyers and a small number of mental health professionals who got together uh, for, to promote a project that was intended to improve family justice for children and for families and improve the outcome for families who, who volunteered their own time and their own money to establish steering committees that led to the founding of provincial not-for-profit organizations uh, and in British Columbia. I am delighted to say that parenting coordination uh, was incorporated into the 2013 Family Law Act, uh, which contains specific provisions expressly allowing the court to appoint parenting coordinators over the ejection of a party. As well, uh, hearing the voice of the child is now um, uh, a, a uh, is now a sub- Is now a rebuttable presumption in both the Provincial Family Law Act in British Columbia and in the revisions to the Divorce Act that will be taking effect on the 1st of July this year. And both of those uh, changes represent a tremendous amount of progress. Uh, But just to think about the the extent of the change that was wrought by just those two organizations in British Columbia, where now... uh, Thirteen years after the founding of the Roster Society, parenting coordination is available all throughout the province, and has a high degree of credibility among both the bar and the bench. Uh, and the Here the Child Society, which has done yeoman's work in terms of establishing uh, protocols and best practices for non-evaluative use of the child reports, that are available at a fraction of the cost of parenting assessments that are produced by mental health professionals, um, and then. You know, and then we move to Alberta. And, uh, it, it, you know, Alberta has a, um, has a very entrepreneurial spirit among uh, all of its residents, and lawyers are not excluded from that. And so we see, uh, groups like the Resolve Legal Group in Calgary, um, which, uh, went out of its way to form partnerships with local businesses when they were open, uh, to, uh, create, uh, self-care cards for clients that gave clients a discount at all sorts of places uh, from uh, places that provided uh, you know physical therapy to massage to other sort of wellness type programs other other uh, law firms in Calgary are developing you know child uh, uh, parenting dispute resolution boot camps, where at a reduced rate, they get both parents into a room and beat sense into them. And so they're aiming to try to get a resolution done within three hours rather than three years. Uh, and there are similar initiatives being run by pockets of lawyers throughout the rest of the province, where you know groups of lawyers are forming uh, affiliations with groups of mental health professionals so that both the legal and the mental health dimensions of uh, family restructuring can be adequately addressed. And so, you know, while while we are seeing government lagging badly behind, uh, and and the governments I'm speaking of are the the federal government and the provincial and territorial governments outside of British Columbia, and so while we're seeing you know government struggling to create change that is. Uh, uh, Anything approaching meaningful, in you know, in British Columbia we have the example of multidisciplinary groups of professionals working together to create long-lasting institutions that have fundamentally changed the family law landscape. And in Alberta, we have pockets of lawyers who, although they are working in an uncoordinated manner and to some extent are fracturing um, the, the the retail landscape from the perspective of clients, they demonstrate you know uh, an enormous amount of individual personal commitment to sometimes sacrifice profits in favor of finding less adversarial ways of resolving disputes that are, in fact, multidisciplinary and take into account the fundamental well-being of parents and their children, along with the legal aspect of seeking a resolution of uh, problems that would otherwise be headed to trial
0: and i certainly don't doubt that uh there are plenty of lawyers and practitioners out there that are willing to uh try something different and experiment uh but as you alluded to a little bit earlier kyla you know it requires law societies uh to some extent to facilitate and uh and lubricate this Uh, uh, this uh, phase of experimentation. I mean, is it really reasonable to expect that, uh, you know, the courts, the judges, uh, the law societies can ever become comfortable with experimentation, which uh, which also entails a certain degree of failure uh, in working to build a more resilient court system? Are they prepared to go through that? And if they're not, how do we get them there?
1: some hope um, you know with the with the current law society I think there's a real push towards uh, allowing or creating a space for lawyers to try new things and experiment uh, you know there's been talk about a sandbox idea where you know where people can collaborate and people can test out new ideas in sort of a safe space um, and then we can test the impact on, on the public, um, you know, with those, those within those projects. Um, and, and I think, I think there are people that are pushing that. The Law Society, you know, is definitely moving towards that mindset of, you know, we do have to experiment, we do have to try new things, or at least we have to open the door to allow people to do that and reduce the risk, um, to a certain degree. Um, the courts, I think, are, you know, are there, they've got their own internal structures that, that make that incredibly difficult. Um, you have different levels of court um, and you have different budgets and people are in charge of different budgets and each of their budgets impact everybody else. And so in order to get everybody on the same page, in order to experiment, you've got to get all levels of you know budgetary responsibility on the same page and supporting those. Um, not to say that it can't be done. And, and I think that there are some judges out there and court administrators who are starting to push the envelope. Um, the Court of Appeal is one of them and they're, they're doing great work in terms of, um, you know, automating the process and um, moving towards more digital filings and, and things like that. So, so the work can be done. Um, it, and I think people are starting to take some of those risks, um, but as lawyers, that's what we're taught. We're taught that from day one, you know, along with the the zealous advocacy, we're taught to identify risk, but we're never really taught what to do with that risk. Uh, We're never taught to assess it uh, in any meaningful way and determine if the way forward is worth the risk. It's identify the risk, avoid the risk, Um, and that's where the analysis tends to end. So, it's something that does need to shift in how we view these things, and I do see pockets of it.
0: We, we've seen uh, regulatory changes in the uh, in the U.S. Uh, coming to the fore uh, in the discussions around this. I know Utah has um, is pushing for a regulatory sandbox model of of again experimentation. Um, have you followed that? And does you know does that give you some hope, uh, John Paul, that uh, we're going to that the that perhaps the law societies are going to come under? Uh, additional pressure to follow suit?
2: Well, let's be clear about the ambit of the law societies and the questionable criticality of their role, right? The role, uh, law societies have a critical role to play whenever the legal profession act in your particular jurisdiction or the code of conduct are imperiled or threatened, and in fact, uh, part of the radical structure of the Aspire Legal Initiative that uh, Kyla was involved in. Uh, part of the problem that that Aspire had was trying to fit into the you know as, as a round peg into the square hole created by the law society. So that was a tangible regulatory issue. But where we see uh, law societies like the like the one in Utah creating that regulatory sandbox. I mean, what we're talking about there is we're talking about just one part of uh, increasing access to justice, which has to do with the not entirely clear question about whether introducing uh, people who are not lawyers providing legal services will, in fact, increase uh, the ability of average Canadians to access justice, right? And the, and the problem with that is that uh, admitting non lawyers to the practice of law to some degree is not a complete answer to the access to justice problem. It provides legal services at what is theoretically a discounted rate, although the data on that is contested as well. Um, but uh, so, but, but you're not changing the overall structure of the system in order to do that. Right, the the really big picture access to justice problem, like an administrative approach to family law, that requires action on the part of the federal and the provincial governments, the allocation of substantial funding, and the development of a cadre of bureaucrats who are genuine, who are genuinely visionaries and able to free themselves from the shackles of tradition to look at genuinely new approaches to family justice. And so, uh, on the one hand, I, I am really happy to see what's going on in Utah and the, the other number of American jurisdictions, and in Ontario, where they've or they're looking at licensed paralegals or uh, and some other means of bringing a paralegal type concept into the practice of law that should have some impact on the the ability of average uh, Canadians to access the court system. But the bigger change that I think we need, which is aimed at uh, dealing with family restructuring in a more holistic and more constructive and less destructive way, that's within the province of the government. And it's not something that the average lawyer is going to be able to do, and it's not something that's within the purview of the law societies.
1: But, John-Paul, to your point earlier is that if we do have these sort of incremental changes, bringing paralegals in to, to provide service, that creates some competition, which will hopefully then create... More innovation uh, around, you know, how people are pricing or delivering their services. And to, the same, to your point of what happened in BC, is if we have a groundswell of this and we have, you know, a group of people that are making some fundamental changes to the way things are done, that then puts pressure on the government to make those changes. So, so it, I don't think necessarily that it has to be one or the other. Um, it, it could be that this, you know, a, a ground up approach. Um, might give us the result that we're looking for, which is change from the government.
2: Yeah. Oh, I'm. I'm not saying anything to the contrary. Um, I. I support. Uh, The introduction of paralegals, because um, I do think it will increase the ability of the average Canadian to access justice, and I do think that the introduction of competition to the monopoly that lawyers currently enjoy is going to exert some downward market forces on the 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 prices that lawyers are currently able to charge. But what, what I'm what I'm what I'm what I'm suggesting is that that is not in itself a complete answer. I'm suggesting that that. Paralegals do increase access to justice, but they increase access to the current status quo. What I'm suggesting and and would really believe is, is incredibly important is a much larger rethink of how we deal with family justice problems. And paralegals, I, I would hope, have a role to play in that. But I would like to see uh, the, the, the federal and provincial and territorial governments working together to develop an administrative approach to family law that gets these difficult issues out of the court system and the destructive and costly adversarial approach that it requires.
0: And on that, uh, John Paul uh, and Kyla, I mean, you know, uh, our governments, uh, I think there's some expectation, some concern perhaps that our governments are going to be exhausted after this uh, pandemic and this crisis because they've been in crisis mode for, 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 for several weeks and they will probably continue to be so for, for several more. After all this, also, are they going to be too cash-strapped to provide the funding? Uh, And will they have appetite to fund real justice reform? And is this a concern for you, uh, to both of you?
1: It is, but I think they can get creative. Um, You know, I I don't think that there'll be a whole lot of extra money to throw around, uh, you know, to to fund some of this. But the funding that they're already giving to legal aid, to the courts, there needs to be a conversation about the priorities for that 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 money. So you take legal aid for an, as an example, and and legal aid uh, in Alberta obviously funds um, access uh, to lawyers for um, our you know most financially challenged in you know, Alberta. Um, but the problem is is that they fund them in the same way that they that lawyers typically get paid. They get they get paid by the billable hour. Um, which does not promote efficiency. It doesn't make them do their work any faster. And in, in fact, in the same way the billable hour works is it promotes inefficiency. And unfortunately, that's on the backs of our, our province's most vulnerable. Because in Alberta, and I don't know about other provinces, is the services aren't free. There is a very, you know, generous payback program, and you can pay $5 a month for the rest of your life, but you will pay $5 a month for the rest of your life in order to typically train a junior first-year associate to practice family law. So so this is, from my perspective, this is one opportunity that is, is so clear, is that if the government can can change the, the parameters, and whether that's a performance-based funding or, or whatever they want to come up with but to incentivize efficiency, to incentivize outcomes for the clients, rather than providing that, that money based on the billable hour. To me, that is a fundamental shift that they could make, which would make a huge difference because then the lawyers who are, who are working for legal aid and building their practices are then forced to rethink, okay, how am I doing this? How am I delivering legal services? Which then carries on into their practice, and so they're focusing more on efficiency and outcomes rather than churning out the billable hour. Well, I, yeah, you
2: know, I, I don't know that I have a particularly clear prognostication about where this is going to wind up. Um, on the one hand, you know, I, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, and maybe the cash-strapped future that I think lies ahead of us will, you know, provide a a ongoing impetus that uh, stimulates creative thought and a creative uh, approach to finding solutions on the other hand uh, maybe uh, what 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 we're going to see is the continuing impoverishment of the of the traditional justice system i i, I wish i saw a you know a uh, extended reason for hope but regrettably i don't Re- I, from from my perspective anyway i think we're going to have to see h- how it all plays out and uh, kyla uh, y- you were uh, referring to um alberta legal aids uh, fantastic pay it back program uh and in fact that that really is a uh, wonderful uh, alberta creature uh that doesn't exist in uh, uh all other provinces in other provinces where you get your legal aid funding uh, you you get the funding. And there's no expectation that you're going to have to pay it back. Not in Alberta, though. Well done.
0: You're, you're hard to track, uh, John Paul. You, you have your sunny ways and then you have your more <laughs> pessimistic, uh, pessimist edge. Uh, <laughs> I want to, I want to close out asking a last question to both of you. Um, you know, I've heard, uh, I've heard our former Chief Justice, Beverly McLaughlin, say year after year, that uh, fixing the justice system and access to justice is a multifaceted problem, uh, multifaceted challenge. Um, You know, and I I think she's genuine when she says that, uh, but uh, some more skeptical uh, kinds of people might say that uh, it's it's also a convenient excuse to do not much. So I want to put you on the spot here. If you could change one thing, what would it be? Kyla, let's start with you.
1: Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> There's so much I would say.
0: <laughs> that's completely
2: fair. Go for it, Kyla. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um oh goodness. Let me think. You know what? I I think I I think the easy not the easier route, but the route that is going to change things long term. Is in how we train our students coming through. We train them the same way we've always trained them in the same culture of, you know, black and white thinking, risk aversion, um, adversarial approach that we have for generations. That's the law schools, and then they get into into their firms and they learn the same thing they've always learned, and that perpetuates the problem exponentially. So if we are ever going to have a hope for change, I don't think that we can legitimately rely on people who who grew up in the system are comfortable in the existing system to then ask them to dismantle it all you know and and build it back up again. I think that's gonna come from training people to think differently, to look at problems differently, to approach people differently. So that would be my that would be you know, my the first change is how we train lawyers coming through.
0: That's a pretty good answer, uh, John Paul. Yours? Uh, well, uh, unfortunately, I subscribe to the dismantle it all <laughs> school of thought,
2: and uh, and my personal preference, at least for family justice, would be to get the federal government out of divorce and family law and strip it all back to the ground, rebuild it from the ground up with legislation that is comprehensible to the average Canadian and doesn't require a law school degree to, to get your way through legislation that doesn't require the application of case authority, uh, which the legislation never refers to, by the way, uh, in order to understand and get family, and get family law problems out of courts altogether. So um, my my preference is to raise it all to the ground and start over again.
0: John Paul Boyd, uh, Kyla Sandwith, uh, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast today. Um, I appreciate you both uh, sharing your views, taking the time to speak with us. So I've been talking with John Paul Boyd of uh, John Paul Boyd Arbitration and Kyla Sandwith of DeNovo Inc. Uh, Thank you very much and join us for our next episode. Thank you. Thanks Eve. Well, that wraps up our conversation for today. We want to hear your views about what changes need to happen in our justice system and in the legal profession. Where do you think the key players need to focus their energies and how do you suggest we encourage more experimentation in the legal sector? Let us know on Twitter at CBA Natmag and on Facebook. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Wherever you listen to the podcasts, subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear us in French, listen to our Juriste Branché podcasts.